in a few seconds, you're going to hear Gary talk in a way that the biggest Gary fans, and even some of us on the team, have probably never heard. As some of you might already know, the motto behind the K-Swiss 004s is making the shift towards positivity and optimism. It's about living a life where you make happiness a choice, and you get there by looking at the world through the lens of positivity and optimism. This episode is an up-close and personal interview where Gary gets incredibly intimate and talks about the struggles that he had when building Wine Library in a tone that feels so different than his everyday. We hope you enjoy this episode. Let us know what you thought on social. Tweet Gary at GaryVEE. That's at GaryV on Twitter. Let him know what you thought of the episode. We hope you enjoy. Stand by. Camera speed. Gary, Gary, take one mark. Are you ready? Yep. So here's the other thing, too, for this. What we've been doing and what we talked about, right? Um, and incredibly, like, you are the sixth person today, and the five people before you just sort of went to places um, where I always like to say, and I think what you'll appreciate is to really understand the up, we really need to understand the down. Yep. Um, and just sort of understand that peak and valley. So I'm going to ask you a ton of stuff about... A plethora. Let's go. Because um, I want to know where you've been so I can understand where you are right now. Let's go. Um, cool. I'm going to start off with a question, and I want you to ask yourself this question out loud and think about it before you answer. What is happiness? What is happiness? Happiness for me is being able to do what I want to do at all times in perpetuity. And when you were, when you were younger, when you were a kid, early elementary school, what did you think one day happiness would be? As a kid in elementary school, I didn't even really think about one day what happiness would be. You know, at some level, I was just super happy to be in America at that point. You know, I lived in a very immigrant kind of upbringing the first couple of years being in the U.S., in New York, in a pretty, like, tough situation. So when I think about elementary school, or, you know, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, it's just such a happy time. I was so happy that I wasn't really even thinking about, you know, happiness in the future. I was grateful already at that young of an age. You know, my dad was working every minute. I already had to kind of be the man of the household with a younger sister. And so, you know, I I didn't, very frank, to keep it as authentic as humanly possible, it was not something that ever even crossed my mind. Interesting. And so, also being a, I I guess, I mean, my parents moved here when I I was born here, but my parents moved here in their mid-20s, so immigrant parents also. Tell me, like, what was life like growing up in a household where you're basically growing up in two cultures? A hundred percent. around you every day. The other is at home is... Is different. It's different. The, the four walls inside my home in my childhood were, was a different land than what was outside. Different foods, different cultures, different language. And we spoke an enormous amount of Russian in my household, especially in that first decade that we were here. Um, Stricter rules, you know, a belt hung over the front door. That's how they rolled in the old country to let you know that like if you get on line, you're gonna get whooped. Like, you know, not that my parents ever used it, but that shit was intimidating as 
you know, when there's a belt hanging over your front door and you know it's for you. Um, but it was also an extremely happy home, very positive. My mom is an incredibly optimistic and positive person, so you can imagine how much this sneaker means to me, this shoe means to me, because it's really legitimately two of the first three or four or five things I would think about when I think about her, and more importantly, that upbringing. So it was happy with consequences if you got out of line. And what was, you're the oldest child. Yes. So obviously, you set the example, it starts and stops with you. You were also the litmus test, right? Yeah. Like when you're the oldest child in an immigrant household, yep. they're, they're, they're probably raising you the way, like to your point, the way they were, you know, what they knew from. Oh yeah, my, my upbringing was totally different than my siblings, being the first, being the only one from the old country. You know, it was just, it was different. Not only that, I was a boy and my dad worked every minute. Like, and my mom was a youngster. My mom was in her early and mid twenties raising me. You know, my mom had me when she was 20. So when I was eight, my mom was 28, she's a baby. And so we were homies, we were partners. Like there was a totally different relationship there than I think most people are accustomed to. Like most people have the luxury unless they're, you know, in a place where the father passes away or divorce, obviously there's a lot of things, but you know, it's unusual to have a father who sleeps in the same roof every night, but is legitimately not there because he's literally working 16 hours a day, every day, 364, 63 days a year. That was our reality, and so there was, you know, I was a big boy, plus it was the 80s, it was Jersey. I mean, I was going outside playing a mile away from my home at seven years old. That is not necessarily 2019 playing outside culture. And so it was a different mindset. I walked home from school in kindergarten. Let me say it one more time for the parents that are, you know, I, I walked home from school in kindergarten. So there was a maturity, a sense of responsibility, you know, a pressure to kind of deliver on this great gift of opportunity. Um, and so that's how it went. I want to go there. I want to go, what was that pressure like? What did it feel like internally? How did you, did you put that pressure on yourself? There, that you know, it, you know, it's funny as I'm a rarity where my mom did not put pressure on me to get straight A's and do the immigrant, like school's the way out thing. At the same token, you know, you're sitting at these dinner tables you know, friends are coming over, you're hearing things, and you quickly, especially, you know, I'm a pretty observing kid, you quickly realize, like, how lucky you are, how grateful I am to be in America, you know, how lucky I am to have a bathroom in my house, hearing my parents talk about theirs being outside. Both my parents lost a parent before they were 18, so right away I'm into that gratitude. And so, you know, my grandma and my great-grandma and grandfather, you know, who spent 40 and 70 years in the old country, all they can talk about in the first 10 years of my childhood in America is there's green grass, there's bread in the supermarket. So, you know, you're getting this overflow of gratitude. At the same token, there is this sense of like, my own kind of mental pressure of like, okay, what am I gonna do with this amazing at bat? Like, you know, I'm the first Vaynerchuk to come through this system. Um, I need to, you know, my, my mom definitely put pressure on like, you're the oldest brother, so like immediately I'm thinking about my sister Liz at all times, I need to do a good job. But it was less grades, it was more about being a good person. It was less grades and it was hard work. In my household, hard work 
and being kind was put on a pedestal. That is who I am. Like, here I am 40 years later, it's who I am. But you, but even so, you know, I think what I find so interesting is now we, sitting here now in 2019, we have the luxury perspective, right? Of course. And at that time, you know, when you're in it, what did it feel, what did that pressure feel like to prove or please, you know, parents, and like regardless, yeah. even though they probably would have like, yeah. said, you know now, you didn't know then. Look, I'll, I'll tell you, I'd love to paint a picture of more adversity. I'm outrageously comfortable in pressure. I even weirdly think I manifest it. It's where I'm most comfortable. I loved the pressure. I wanted to set the tone. I wanted to be the number one. I wanted to be the, you know, I want to be the patriarch. I want to be the legacy. I want to deliver. I want, you know, there was incredible support around me. The pressure was, was real. I didn't want to fail, you know. I wanted to make my family proud. I love my family so much, but I'd be bullshit this camera if I said like I was crippled, but there was not a single night I went to sleep feeling pressure. I just always knew I could do it. What about for you, what was sort of the toughest um, moment for you, would you say? <sighs> toughest moments for me was, were, toughest moments for me growing up, really was, God, it's crazy. It's like, it, was, it wasn't tough, but it was intriguing to me, almost confusing that being such a poor student led to so many assumptions about who I was and what I was capable of. And so snobby judgment, you know, from academia, from distant relatives who had kids that were going to better schools. You know, but the reason I paused for so long, which is about as long as I can remember pausing to a question, is it's important for me to tell the truth, and I was so insular. You know, I feel like I was so positive about how it was gonna turn out that it was hard for me to internalize it. I. Really, honestly, the toughest part for me growing up, actually, now that I think about it, was losing in anything. I used to cry a lot as a kid. Like if I lost in pool or Little League or a tennis match or chess or Nintendo, like, or the Jets lost or the Knicks or Michael Jordan did some shit that pissed me off. Like, that was really the truth. Like when I wasn't in control, and something I cared deeply about happened, or when I was in control, like when I played and I lost. Losing in a competition environment, the, having to calibrate the fact that somebody was better at something than me was something that took me a very long time because I was so <laughs> blindly positive and optimistic, back to the shoe, like that I was gonna win. So it like kind of like, Took me a, it took me a good, I would argue that from six to 15, it was a very long process of me being able to acknowledge that an, another human being was better at something than me. 
And what, what would you, what do you, can, what do you attribute to that? Do you attribute to that your own person? Because even just hearing your story, and by the way, too, you, you, the, the amount of candor you've shown so far is uh, at the peak of what I've, and what I've seen, and, and it, I can feel you searching for that, so I appreciate you going to these places, and, and I guess for, the question I have is, what do you attribute that then to? Do you attribute that to... Blind belief. like you were letting your... Blind belief. Parents down, or what? No, blind belief. I just really thought I was better than everybody. And when you believe that, you know, you need to face the truth that you're not. And I think it was super important for me to be so competitive early on and to struggle with defeat um, because, you know, that's a process of maturity that you need to go through. But it was extremely difficult to me. There was just never a situation that I walked into that I thought ended with me losing. And, you know, it, to the point where, like, you know, it's funny to, like, dig deep, like, I'm starting to go there a little bit right now and feel things that I don't know if I'm making it up or I'm forcing it, but I don't think so. Like, I was in shock when I lost in anything. And, um, and I was disappointed. And I didn't like the feeling of somebody feeling that they were better than me. That, no question, I didn't like. Um, so, I just, I, I think it's naturally ingrained in me, like just, I was so young and just so angry to lose. You know, I got into a lot of fights as a kid, and which is interesting to me about me. Yeah, why did you want fights? Well, first, because Oded Weinstock was a piece of shit. But besides that, um, I was I I didn't know how to control losing, and I was willing to scrap. You know, like. It, it hurt more to lose and have somebody feel like they beat me than getting beat up. So I'd rather, like, like literally got into fights if somebody beat me in something. What, a, um, take me to the, I wanna go to the, um, the science test and the grades you got back and the Fs you got. Yep. Because that, and that seemed like a pivotal moment. Yeah, fourth, fourth grade science test, is it, in fourth grade, I got an F on a science test, and I needed to get it signed. And that was crazy, because I'd never really gotten that bad of a grade before. But in third grade, I started seeing the writing on the wall, and it all kind of fell apart heavy in fourth grade science. And I brought the test home, and I hid it. Why did you hide it? Because I didn't want to get punished. Because I wanted to play Nintendo, or that, I had Atari. Or, I wanted to play, like I didn't want to deal with the consequences. Which is interesting, because I'm so passionate about it now to deal with the consequences, but at this point, I wasn't able to calibrate it. And What did you think was gonna happen? Where did you think I thought, the I thought my mom would smack me in the face and tell me I couldn't watch TV or play for a week. And that seemed like the end of the world. Um, so I hid it in my cabinet in my room, got put to bed, and then just couldn't, like my conscience won that night, um, and I went, grabbed it, out, ran into my mom's room an hour later, just couldn't fall asleep, got her to sign it. I don't really remember much else. Um, the only thing else I remember is, that was one of the few times 
in my adolescence that my conscious beat me. I very quickly learned how to beat my conscious and do whatever I had to do to like not deal with the short-term pain that I was not interested in at the time. But basically from that moment on until eight years later, I was consistently punished three to four times a year on report cards. And if I was unlucky in a school that had progress reports, it would be six to eight times a year. And uh, no question that was the adversity. The entire education system in America in the 80s and 90s was my greatest enemy. Um, and was just not a, not a pleasant experience. But I very early on, probably by middle of middle school, maybe definitely by eighth, ninth grade, put it into the corner and realized it was not gonna impact me in the future, even though everybody thought it would. I want you to take a moment, and I want you to look at that, the, that leg of the, that C-stand right behind there. And I just want you to just look at it. And I want you to, after you take a sip, I just want you to look at it, and I want you to think about the kid that hated losing. Yep. And just, even just listening to my voice, just looking at that leg, and just kind of going there in your mind. What did that, just taking us through in your mind, what did that feel like? You don't even have to tell us. And then I want you to look up, when I call your name, I want you to look up and I want you to tell us what those lowest moments of childhood felt like in one word. Ready and Gary. Temporary. Absolutely temporary. There was just no way I was gonna let that person beat me again. And there was just no way I was gonna stay comfortable in this negative place. Just a matter of time. First, I'm going to go back and ask you a question. What is that like to have a dad that, and also same thing, an Indian dad worked Monday through Friday, full-time job, Saturday, Sunday, he owned an apartment complex and he was not there. He was working every day of the week. What's that like having that sort of parent? What's that like to be that first on the front lines in this country with younger siblings and just having to sort of like, you know, the, the circumstances of where you're born and what lineage and things of that nature, they're just so out of control and, and very much out of your control. And I guess at some level, I'm very quick in my mindset and my DNA to deal with the reality. So there was very little dwelling or overthinking like, you know, I'm gonna have it different and harder than my siblings, which I understood, you know, you know, very early on, probably about 12 or 13, I realized, oh, okay, this is my parents' first rodeo. Like, they don't know these things, especially when you're immigrants. They don't even know the culture. Um, you know, and then, and then you, know, there was, you know, it's funny. We talk so much about work-life balance and so many altruistic kind of like ideological things these days, but I was proud that my dad was working hard. You know, there was a sense of pride you know, like, my dad's doing it for us. He's working so hard. And I think that, you know, it's really easy for people that are not in the situation to come to conclusions. Well, oh, poor Gary only went on one or two family vacations and never saw his dad. But the Gary that was growing up was very grateful that his dad was working hard. He was thankful for everything they had. So, you know, again, you know, I, I also, 
and this is super important, and this is probably, you know, a lot of times my mom would always say, like, thank God you were the firstborn. I genuinely enjoy pressure. I really, really do. I, you know, it's why I can be an entrepreneur. You know, I have a stomach for adversity. I have a stomach for depression. And so any level of expectation or any concern about like being first or being the beta or the guinea pig, it just felt like it was meant to be. What about, um, talking about, um, I want to ask you uh, again about the, um, about that report card and making that decision. It still felt like, feels like a pivotal decision, right? For the first time you're breaking, like you said, the first time you got that level, right? And you're at that sort of like, well, should I just kind of not get the signature? Or should I just own it and go, I was. It was too early. The, you know that first test with the F. It was too early for me to say I'm done with school. This is why it wasn't that immediate. It took a couple more years for that to kind of sink in. So at this point, it was a pretty intense moment of like you know I'm, I was and I, you know I was never punished for anything besides school. Like you know I didn't do drugs or alcohol. I didn't pass curfew. Just for school. It's really one of the, like literally was never grounded in my life for anything besides school. So I was a really good kid, so having this one thing was heavy because I wasn't used to dealing with that kind of like, it was really just letting my mom down because she was so much my world. Yeah, how, what, how was your mom to you? Off of that? Just in general? Ugh. Like, I'm the complete, I mean, you can, uh, you know, a lot of people say to me that I'm more humble or grounded than they expect, and it makes me laugh, because every time they'll say it, what I say to myself every time, some version of, I'll say, that's easy when you don't think you're the one responsible for what's happening. You know, I'm just such a byproduct of them. I'm just such a byproduct, like I just, every accolade I get feels so good because I feel like I'm, I feel like I get it and I just throw it at my parents. Um, and you know, my mom is, look, my dad taught me if this, you know, if, if, if I was talking about word is bond and worth ethic and honor um, and negotiation and just, willing things to success, this would be one big segment about my dad. But if I'm talking about positivity and optimism, that is 100% my mother. My, my dad is actually pessimistic and negative. <laughs> That's just the truth. So, you know, all my positivity and optimism uh, and, and the capability of being the bigger person, um, those are hardcore Tamara traits. Yes, but what's really remarkable is I didn't know that about my dad until I was 15, 16, 17. So I get this great, you know, circumstance where the first 15 years, 13 years, 15 years of my life, I get disproportionate optimism and positivity and showmanship and all this stuff, storytelling and pizzazz and hype. And then I go into my dad's world and he cuts a lot of the bullshit out. 
Um, Really, you know, there's a great joke inside my family that I kind of went to the tree and picked all my parents' best traits because I was first, and and that, I really believe that. You know, it's really humbling and and extraordinarily. Uh, I'm just outrageously grateful. I'm a I'm a scary execution of my parents' best traits. And what um, taking through? I want to go to your early 20s, and your 20s in general, and just working at Wine Library. And even the name Wine Library aside, working for your dad, yeah. right, and building that up, what prompted that? What prompted you to do that versus just say, you know what, I'm also an entrepreneur, and I'm going to chase my own thing. What prompted you to, why did you feel the need? By the time I was 22, I'd worked in that store since I was 14 years old. That business was in my blood, you know, and I felt enormous amounts of pressure to pay back my parents. By myself. You know, honestly, this is where, like, this is why, you know, I'm smiling right now because they just did it right. I mean, you know what's funny? There was almost no conversation. There was never, I don't, ever recall a conversation of like, what are you gonna do after school? I think by the time I was 15 or 16, it was pretty understood that I was gonna be in the business. Definitely, definitely by the time I was 19, because I just remember the first three days of sophomore year of college, I was driving to liquor stores in Massachusetts and analyzing their stores. I mean, if you, you know, if you're already going in the specking other stores, like it's funny for me to think about that. It's not a story I've ever shared. The first week of my sophomore year, I clearly remember going to five or six stores. That summer must, you know, it's funny. I'm getting goosebumps. That summer must have been it. That summer of my freshman year of college. What year was that? 95, 94. Yeah, like actually, that makes sense. Like that was a big year. And so I wanted to help. I knew that I was special. I knew it. And I knew that I could build that business. I, I knew it when I was a teenager, and I definitely knew it as I was growing up into becoming a man. But to that pressure, right? Yeah. It's so interesting and so fascinating. Did that pressure come from you feeling like you need to pay your dad back? How about your dad? I, the pressure was selfish. I think I don't like the feeling of owing anybody anything, including my own parents. It is interesting. It's, a, it's not a super, I don't think it's a very healthy trait. I really don't. I don't say it proudly. Like, it was probably the most difficult thing I've said out loud so far in this interview. I just don't like it. I don't like giving up the leverage. And is it because you just wanted to like, Wipe the ledgers. Like, yeah. Okay. Or, or just emotional. You know, you know, honestly, to not pick a, to, to paint a very honest picture, I actually didn't think about it at all. It was almost like you're a zombie walking through the motions. Like, I just knew that this is what I'm going to do. You know, I, I didn't, I, I didn't think about my cut. You know, the business is going from four to ten to seventeen to twenty-five million. I own nothing, doesn't even come through my mind. Um, I think immigrants will understand it better than non-immigrants. You know, when you have a family business, 
it's the old man or old woman's business until they die and then you get it. It's like in the family forever. It's like a, it was, it was, it was the fourth child. So at the time you're helping your dad build his business, what are you for yourself sacrificing? Or were you sacrificing anything? You know, I was sacrificing everything. I put everything into that business. I sacrificed my social life. I sacrificed my leisure. I sacrificed my physical nature. I developed a really bad back. Um, I sacrificed everything to build that business. In a way that almost nobody believes me, except a couple of people that knew me then. Um, Nobody can believe the hyperbole that comes out of my mouth, which I'm okay with, I understand. But f- I gave up everything. My friends. Is that <sighs> No. It wasn't. Which is kind of like super interesting. For you. You know, it's funny, sorry to interrupt. Some things are just destiny. You know, it's kind of like interesting to talk about this in this kind of setting, just light and darkness. That's how it was. It was just like, I just went into this tunnel and I stayed in it for a decade. And when you were there, when you were working at Wine Library, fulfilling this personal just feeling that you had of doing this thing, right? Um, did you see a path forward, or did you always think, did you think like, I'm gonna be here for a set period of time, and once I'm done, I'm gonna move on? It's a really interesting question, which I haven't addressed a lot. I thought I'd be there forever until the day I didn't. When AJ was growing up, my younger brother, it, at some point in his early teens, maybe 15, 14, 16, it became obvious to me that I wanted to do a business with him. And I also, probably by 18, 19, 20, realized that, that he didn't want to work in the family business. And then Wine Library TV happened. It was, you know, it's funny. I never had a conversation with my dad about me leaving day to day. It just kind of happened. It was like crazy to think about. You know, it was also a time where probably the toughest time in my career was when my dad and I weren't clicking. There was a point where the business got so big and I was getting the credit and I was starting to get the credit in the press. And I feel like I could have done a better job of giving my dad more credit, but I think at some level I was struggling subconsciously without even realizing it that I owned nothing of it and now I'm married. And you know, here I am at 30, 31, 32 years old. I'm not paying myself a lot of money at all. You kind of wake up and you've put you know, a decade of 15 hour days, 360 days a year into something. You've built something and watched it grow from four to 60 million in revenue. And you've never really made more than $150,000 a year. Um, and so, that was interesting and what ended up happening was I just started getting so much of the credit that it started undermining my dad's own feelings for himself. It's almost like he was getting wiped out of history and it was an interesting, difficult time. What it took for me to get out of that moment was 
the ability to start over. And how do you, did you feel like there was a point where you felt maybe unfulfilled by what, even, full, even though you were fulfilled helping your dad doing all this, you were unfulfilled, there was something else that was there for you that you wanted to chase or you wanted to pursue? Yeah, I mean, I could feel like me changing. You know, the obsession with building the biggest wine retail company in America was fading. And my curiosity about this Web 2.0 evolution of the internet was rising. And I was starting to realize it wasn't that I was a great wine merchant, it was that I was a great communicator. And my career started to shift. And I wanna, um, and for this G, what I wanna do is, what's interesting and what's unique about everybody Yep. Yep. But I think the one thing that's really interesting is that people have, even though it's like, I'll never live that life, I'm not that person, I understand the struggle. Maybe I was like, felt unfulfilled, or maybe I was afraid to take a risk, or maybe I needed to take a new approach. So we're moving for a second to name wine library, yep. the name liquor store, and all that. Talk to me just about the, the general mindset of like changing your altering, trying something new, taking a risk. So take me back to that moment in your early 30s and deciding to, to roll the dice and take a chance and to take a risk and to chase something else. What was that like? Look, everybody goes through a moment in their life where everything you thought up to that second vanishes and you realize that there's an opportunity to change the story that you've written in your head for the last two, three decades. And I think it's universal. I think there are very few people who don't get to a point at year 20, 30, 35 that don't start debating, wait a minute, is this what I want? Is this where I'm going? Is this how it's playing out? And you know, to me, that is one of the most important moments in one's life and this is why I care so much about perspective. You know, many people look at it as a moment to start to get upset and say, wait a minute, this is not what I signed up for. And others, regardless of what's happened, use it as an opportunity to write the next chapter. And that is a choice based on what you're consuming and who you're listening to and what's around you that I think about a lot. You know, I think the turning point in my life, that's a really interesting question. I, you know, honestly, there is no super obvious moment. There's a couple things that come to mind. You know, it's really interesting. One of the biggest turning points in my life was a random flight back from wine country, picking up a Business 2.0 magazine, which is not around anymore, and it was an article about fish.com and dog.com and house.com and these people that were squatting names and flipping them for tens of millions of dollars. I don't know what it was about that magazine, but this is actually a true story. Like, I wish AJ was here. I landed, I called my brother. 
He picked up. I said, what are you doing? It was late on a Friday night. He, it was his first week in college. And he said, I'm at a party. I'm like, I need you to step outside. He's like, okay. Speaks to who AJ was, college, first college party. He's like, I'll step outside, talk to my brother. And I literally, he goes, because it was super loud, and he goes, what's up? And I said, I'm going to change your life. That's what's up. On that flight from San Francisco to New York, reading a random magazine around domain squatting, I decided that I wasn't gonna be in the wine business anymore and I was gonna go all in on this internet thing. So much so that the second I landed and could get service, I called my brother and for, like easily, like literally, the words that came out of my mouth were, I'm gonna change your life. And how big of a risk was this? It was a huge risk in the fact that I was changing complete course of what I've done for the last 20 years. I was leaving behind my baby. Um, I had no money. You know, Wine Library, excuse me, VaynerMedia started in somebody else's conference room because we had no money for rent. Um, so it was a ton of risk by normal standards when somebody reads it on paper, but not necessarily for me. It just felt like progression. And do you remember, do you remember feeling those first steps of change? And what did it feel like? I, I remember going to London in February after that, so it might have been six months or what have you, and going to the future of web apps. It was a conference in London. And I just remember people talking about Twitter and where the world's going and technology. And suddenly my world had switched from grapes to bites and from corkscrews to mobile devices. I just knew I was home. I knew I was gonna dominate. I remember everybody speaking on stage and I remember thinking, I'm gonna be up there. Um, yeah, those early days going to South by Southwest, 2008, and just the energy in the air and these new people who were writing blogs and building the future, Twitter and Facebook and it was the most at home I've ever felt. I want you to just stay there that moment, hang on that chin at all, and just look down and think about that moment. I see this person, I see this side, this interesting place of just really kind of like this moment of change for you. I was so alive. I was just so ready. And I knew it. I knew it. In that moment, I knew that I was exactly where I needed to be. That all the circumstances up to that point led me to this place where I was ready to flourish. I felt so at home. 
Thanks guys for listening. Please, please, please share the podcast and make sure you've subscribed because a bunch of you aren't subscribed and more importantly, a bunch of you listen every day and haven't told your friends it's the best podcast in the world. I'm watching. (laughs) Have a great day.